Welcome to the For the Church podcast, another great gospel-centered resource from Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. My name is Jared Wilson. Don't forget the C, Jared C. Wilson, Assistant Professor of Pastoral Ministry and author in residence at Midwestern Seminary. And I'm here, as always, with my arched eyebrow colleague and friend, <laughs> Ronald. Is your, your name's not Ronald, it's is not. it? No, it's, it's, it's actually Ronnie. Ronnie, yep. Yeah, this is weird, because my wife's name is Becky, and people always assume she's Rebecca. But it's actually not, Becky. It's Becky. Her, wow. On her birth certificate. I, I would have thought wrong. It's yeah. Becky. Yeah, it's not Rebecca. So You're I'm here with Ronnie club. with an I. Yeah, no E. No E. Hertz. He is Assistant Director of Marketing, Assistant Professor of Christian Studies, and Managing Editor for the Church, soon to be Dr. Ronnie Kurtz. By the time you hear this, the defense, I think, will be... Uh, have con- you know have been conducted. I'm just going to assume you pass. <laughs> Think, I think everybody here is, is rooting for you. I appreciate it. There will be a very embarrassing episode later if I do not. <laughs> That's right. If you come back and go, yeah, by the way. No, we'll just have Matt do some good editing on it, and we'll take that whole part out. Hey, speaking of gospel-centered resources, which is what this is, I'm skipping the banter. I'm so excited yeah, yeah, this for is, this subject. This is the Jared C. Wilson episode. I want to jump right on in. <laughs> what does it mean to be gospel-centered. That's today's topic. And here's sort of why I brought it up. Um, I think you share this concern the same way I do. Um, I'm grateful for the gospel-centered tribe, the gospel-centered movement, whatever you want to call it. I remember, I'm old enough to remember when, if you were interested in a subject like, how do I do gospel-centered student ministry, there's almost nothing to read. Um, I remember when I had people asking me, uh, this is back in my, oh gosh, either Nashville days or whatever. Somebody would say, what's the gospel-centered youth ministry book? And maybe there was you know, something out there, but I, just, I wasn't aware of one. And I would say to everybody who asked me, you need to write it. You need to write it. Now we have this abundance of resources. There's conferences and podcasts and websites and all sorts of things, networks, all hinging on mm-hmm. gospel centrality and being gospel driven. And I write all these gospel centered and gospel driven books and things as well. <laughs> My concern is that it just becomes a kind of cultural identifier or a tribal movement. And if I just grabbed a random guy at the TGC conference or you know, someplace else and pulled him aside and said, what does it mean to be gospel centered? I'm afraid I wouldn't really get a substantive answer. Yeah. I think people would say things like, oh, it means centering on the gospel, right? <laughs> you and just rephrased the just, title. <laughs> that's right. It means orienting my life around the gospel. Well, of course it does. But yeah. what does it mean to do gospel-centered ministry? So I've got some thoughts. I think this is a really important. Yeah. Could you boil it down if somebody were, were to ask you, what does that mean, be yeah. gospel-centered? What are the major implications before of that? Before we jump to a question, yeah. can I give you another concern about the gospel-centered movement? Okay. Is that okay? Sure. This one's a little bit more from the academic side, yeah. but I do think it's prevalent, and I think it's real, and I, I, I do think we should talk about it at some point in this episode, is whereas your concern was there's such an emphasis on gospel-centeredness, it could be getting muddied in terms of a meaningful term at this point. Right. One of my concerns is that the gospel-centered movement could have possibly lost the God of the gospel in the sense that if what it means to be gospel-centered is to be constantly reframing the atonement with application towards towards particular life, well, 
there's a massive portion of Christian Christian doctrine that's being neglected there, which is other components of the Trinity, you know, okay. and, and components is the right part, obviously, um, given that God is simple. But uh, <laughs> we, one of the things that I've said, and I'm trying to press in even with my dissertation, is um, the redemption has a redeemer. The creation has a creator. Uh, the, the gospel has a God. And so I do think there's a concern from the academic side of the house that the gospel center movement has a propensity to think about the gift more often than the giver. Uh, the gift okay. being the gospel and the giver being the triune God. So anyways, that's just another concern. Okay. It might not be a concern that you're as, yeah. that's in, in your streams as much, but uh, I've heard it from, from folks that I really respect. Yeah, and I think it's worth talking well, about. Well, I think that's maybe connected to the way the gospel for some operates as kind of um, an ideology, sort of a, I think it's Ray Ortland who said the gospel does not hang in the air like, or hang in the, the air as in, in a vacuum or it, it does not exist as an ideological abstraction. Yes. So it's this idea. Yep. And we rally around this idea. And if if you do that, I mean, you know, I think it's important to distinguish gospel from law and all that sort of thing. Um, and to and to um, you know clearly ar- you know articulate what the gospel is and and what it is not. But if you're rallying around just this kind of idea, you're right. It it leaves out the necessary implications. It can lead to a kind of even antinomianism and and you know things like that. Um, and I think that's connected. I don't think it's exactly what you're saying, but I think it's connected yeah, to what definitely. you're saying because you get hung up on mm-hmm. this 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 idea that you forget kind of the forest yes. and you forget right who who the object the real object in terms of glory the the idea is about right my primary concern is just sort of the jargon replaces meaning mm-hmm. and it's just about identifying you know we've got gospel centered music and gospel centered resources and we've got gospel centered <laughs> right we got we have our gospel-centered food at our gospel-centered table with our gospel-centered <laughs> friends, and we're having gospel-centered fellowship, right? Yeah. What are we having tonight? We're having gospel-centered tacos. <laughs> at the, uh, Those are my favorite kind of tacos. In our, as, right, in our gospel <laughs> community group. You know, so we just, we, we and, and I'm not opposed to using yes. the, the language. In fact, yeah. I'm a defender of those Same. using the language because there's some people who just hate it. Like, well, I don't want to see gospel-driven on another book. And, all, and, and that's, you know, to, to me, it's a preference thing. That's fine, whatever you want to call it. I I'm not upset about people using the language. I just want there to be meaning and substance behind it. That's what I'm afraid yeah. is getting lost, that we've become, um, you know, uh, um, gospel-centered in our jargon, but not actually in our theology yeah, or in our, in our, in our ministry. Yeah. So I typically break it down into three implications. Like if someone said, Jared, what does it mean to be gospel-centered? Um, I, you know, I think there's more than this, but there's three primary implications for me in terms of what gospel-centered ministry is. The first is, of course, how you understand and thus how you preach and teach the Bible. What is your understanding of the Bible? Is it uh, a resource book for religious uplift, some you know moral tales? Um, is it just sort of a, a theological reference book, a historical reference book? Even though its theology is perfect and its you know history is impeccable, et cetera, et cetera, to understand that the whole Bible is about this, the story of redemption that uh, um, you know through Christ, that Christ is the culmination of all of the scriptures, Old Testament and and New. Um, I think a lot more people now, of course, are kind of turning the corner to getting that. But there's a lot of us who that was really revolutionary when oh, we first yeah. heard it. You know, mm-hmm. when I first heard Tim Keller in his um, inaugural TGC message. 
what is gospel-centered ministry, by the way, which I would recommend to anyone to go listen to, still available online, what is gospel-centered ministry? Um, and in that in that message is where we get that little, it's now famous, the kind of Jesus is the true and better, mm-hmm. Jesus is the true and better Adam, and Jesus is the true and better, and he kind of goes on to say, for those of us who had never really even approached the concept of biblical theology, you know, the category of biblical theology, um, the you know the Christ-centeredness, uh, um, you know even you know sometimes you, you, you know sometimes covenantalism, all that sort of thing. That was like what, he was blowing <laughs> our minds because the Old Testament was not about Jesus. Yeah. It was simply about um, the heroes of the faith and all mm-hmm. and, and setting up moralistic you know, stories. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, you would read these things in terms of. Um, what the moral application was, be brave like Daniel and, you know, be humble like Joseph and all those sorts of things. And here was a guy saying, no, all that's true, but it's pointing to Jesus. So obviously that has implications. How are you going to preach the Bible on a Sunday morning? How are you going to teach the Bible in Sunday school class or in a community group or sitting across the table, you know, from someone you're discipling and you're working through the scriptures together? Is Christ the culmination of all the Bible? Um, That's a that's a very substantive question, and it and it directs um, how you do ministry. Mm-hmm. So to me, that's the number one implication: how you understand and thus how you preach and teach the Bible with Christ as a center. That's that's the first implication, and that's um, one of the major tells. If I go into a church on a Sunday morning and they're preaching, whether Old Testament or New Testament, and the primary message is be a better yeah. whatever or do hard, you know, you know, you know, try harder at this do better at that. If it's for takeaway, you know, if the major emphasis is you being a more improved something or other, I know this church is not operating from a gospel-centered standpoint, whether that's, you know, says that on their website or not. We're a gospel-centered church. Well, if you're, you know, what you're betraying about what you believe, you know, the Bible uh, is about us and our moral improvement, then I know you're not a gospel-centered church. Yeah. Yeah. I once had a a professor um, not here (laughs) <laughs> say um when was the last he was saying this like as, as a as a point is pointing this question to us like uh it's a bad thing he said when was the last time you heard an old testament sermon that didn't mention jesus as if like that's what you should do and i was like mm. oh hopefully never <laughs> <laughs> you know because we're christian preachers <laughs> yeah right right um, and so i totally agree with that mark of gospel centeredness being being um you know focused on christ i even think at, th- think through a passage like First Corinthians fifteen, when when Paul is saying, "I deliver to you as of what is first importance," yeah, uh, and then he outlines the gospel that Christ was killed and and was buried and was resurrected. Yeah, um, <clears throat> it's of, it's of first importance. It's the substance that is most important in the ministry, and that that's one of the hallmarks that I think of when I think of gospel centered. I do think that the what you said is right about the the jargon replacing meaning. And one of the things that I would ask a diagnostic question about, you know, if, if the diagnostic question is, are you gospel-centered, the, the way that you can decipher that is, has the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus permeated every part of your personal life and mm. your ministry? Um, we, it's not a bad question to ask, how does the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus impact these 10 minutes of our service yeah. and this 40 minutes of our service being the sermon and these you know, how I, and then even in your personal life, how I treat my wife, how I treat my kids. Um, one of the, I, I forgot who, I think at this point, probably a dozen people have said it. At, at some point in the gospel center movement, 
all of the voices just became one in my mind, yeah. I think. But someone <laughs> okay. somewhere said yeah. uh, a sermon is not gospel-centered if it can be true and Jesus not have died. Mm. <laughs> and I thought that was a good word. Yeah. Like if you write your sermon and then you go back through and ask yourself, could I say all of this if Jesus didn't die and was resurrected and ascended? Yeah. If, if all of it is still true, or, or maybe even a more simple question is, could a rabbi preach this sermon? Right. Now, I've heard that. I don't, I don't know if it's original to him, but the first person I ever heard say that was Ed Stetzer. Yeah. It was like, could your sermon be preached in a synagogue? Yeah. Could it be preached at a, in, a more, you know, in a Mormon tabernacle, that sort of thing? And if you're preaching from the Bible, even from the Bible, a Christian preaching to Christians from the Bible, and it's a message about how even, even it's a message about Jesus. Jesus was nice. Jesus was kind, so you be kind. Yeah, that message could be preached in uh, um, in a you know kingdom hall, Jehovah's Witness kingdom hall. Um, it, there's nothing distinctly Christian about that message yep. because you can get works righteousness or moral uplift almost any place. Yep, that's exactly even right. from the Bible. Mm-hmm. Um, I I love the illustration, and I, I don't. I'm I'm gonna botch it in terms of the details, but um, Charles Spurgeon tells that that famous story about the young minister preaching and then asking the older minister what he thought of his you know sermon, and the older minister says it was a very poor sermon indeed, and the younger minister said, uh, "Why do you think it was a poor sermon? Didn't you think it was very eloquent and you know it was very well spoken and you know the metaphors were apt?" And the older preacher said, uh, "Of course, yeah, the metaphors are great. It's very clever, very eloquent." But still, it was a poor sermon. He said, "Well, didn't you think that you know, the, you know, theology was was deep and all these sorts of things?" Yeah, yeah, it was. You know, that was all fine as far as it goes. But it still was a poor sermon. And of course, the younger minister says, "Well, why was it a poor sermon?" The older pastor says, "Because there was no Christ in it." To which the young minister replies, "And I actually had a, a, a pastor friend of mine in my last context say the same thing to me as we, when we were talking about preaching. Um, he said, uh, "You know, Jesus was not in the text. Christ was not in the text." We're not to be pre- he says, we're not to be preaching Christ always. We're to be preaching what's in the text. And Spurgeon says, don't you know, young man, that in every village and hamlet in England, there is some road that goes to the great city of London. And your job when you come to a text is to find the road from that text to the great metropolis of the scriptures, which is Christ. And he said, I have not yet found a text that did not have a road to Christ. But if I ever do find one, I will, uh, uh, you know, find one that does not have a road, I will make one. Yeah. <laughs> Which I don't know how you feel about that. Um, I'm in. I'm for it. I'm for it myself. <laughs> I, well, I'll say to my students, like, I think, uh, yeah, as Spurgeon says, I've never found a text that, right. that did not That's have exactly the road. Right. But if I ever do, and I would say I would rather you, like, if you, you, like, looking at even all the abundant resources we have, you cannot figure it out. I would rather you awkwardly preach the gospel than not preach yes. the gospel at yep. all. Yep. Awkwardly preach Christ because mm-hmm. the strength of the gospel is not in our eloquence. It's not in our metaphors. It's, it's in the Holy Spirit who is empowering. He's the one breathing out power through that message of the finished work of Christ. So th- that's where I go with that. My second implication, so Jared, what does gospel centrality mean? How you understand the Bible as Christ, with Christ as the center Secondly, how you answer the question, how do people change? Yeah. I think this is huge because we're always implicitly answering that question. This is what I say. Like, even, you know, your sermons, your counseling, your discipleship, your parenting, <laughs> uh, your, your, you know, the, you, you, the way you engage with your wife and marriage, you know, all these sorts of things. You're implicitly answering the question all, all the time. 
how do people change? And we think we know how, how people change, which is we tell them, <laughs> you, you must change. Here's the things you're doing wrong. Here's the things to do right. Here's how you change. And the problem is uh, the, the law can tell us how we're failing and the law can tell us what to do, but the law cannot empower us to do it. And the law cannot make us more like Christ. That's right. So what is it that, that does that? And when we look in the New Testament to see how is it that people become more like Jesus, that's the aim, right? I mean, I think uh, it's one thing to say, I want people to be better behaved. I want people to be more moral, all those sorts of things. And those are all good things. But what we're really aiming at in ministry, the supernaturality of, of ministry is how do people become more like Jesus? Yep. Well, the Bible says it's by beholding the glory of Jesus, mm-hmm. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, uh, in particular verse 18. Um, we see that it's by beholding the glory of Christ that we are transformed. So holding up the gospel in our preaching and teaching and ministry is actually helping people become more like Christ, preaching the gospel. So the gospel is not just for the lost person. It's for the saved person as well. This is the, it's the power of our sanctification. How you answer that question. And this is so key when you're yeah. planning a sermon because what you're aiming for is transformation. You want souls to be saved or souls to be strengthened by your preaching. Where are you putting the weight of of transformation? Is it on here are the things to do, or is it on here is what is uh, you know what Christ has done for you in grace? And it's so counter you know counterintuitive, isn't it? Because oh, because yeah. we just think if I tell people the work is done, it's going to make them lazy, or <laughs> yeah. you know. Um, but the gospel doesn't do that. No, I remember Elise Fitzpatrick. This is one I actually remember the name of the person. I remember Elise <laughs> Fitzpatrick once pointing out in Psalm fifty one which is, of course, David's repentance psalm with his episode with Bathsheba. She said, and it just stuck in my mind, and I've, I've thought about it so often. She said, notice what Psalm 51 is not. It's not a list of resolutions about not going on the roof anymore. Mm. It's a begging the Lord to restore the joy of his salvation. Mm-hmm. And I think that gets at what you're talking about of a gospel-centered conception of change. Yeah. It's not a, hey, by the way, you probably, the reason you sinned is probably because you can't follow resolutions and laws and rules. <laughs> yeah. And so making the, you know, 10 reasons I'm never going to go to the roof again because I might see Bathsheba up there. Uh, well, that's probably not going to work. Mm-hmm. But asking the Lord to restore the joy of your salvation, well, that, that might actually do something. And on this side of the cross, one of the ways in which the Lord does restore the joy of our salvation is by that Christian reality of what we deserve versus what we have in Christ. And once we truly grasp that, the the great exchange, as it were, what we deserve compared to what we have, what Christ deserved compared to what he got on our behalf, uh, there's a lot of joy to be had there. And in that joy, we might find the motivation to change, exactly as you're saying. I think this is a gospel-centered understanding of, of change. And I remember having this paradigm shift, uh, like you said, you know, Tim Keller kind of blowing your mind. I remember thinking, you know, even in, even as a young freshman in college, talking with other, you know, soon to be pastors, would be pastors about, you know, what is Sunday morning even for? Is it for conversion where people bring their lost friends or is it for the edification of the saints? And I remember at some point, uh, again, don't remember which friend it was, but just saying, actually, I think the gospel gives us both. Yeah, you know, uh, the justification of the the wayward and the edification of the saint. The gospel does it both. It, yes. it it's the justification for the sinner, 
and it's the edification for the saint by virtue of the transformation that we're talking about. And so I think that is a great diagnostic question, your point two of what it means to be gospel-centered. Yeah, well, you know, you referenced 1 Corinthians 15, right? And Paul even gives us a, a hint in those first yes, few yeah. verses as well. You received it, this gospel I preached, you received it. Well, I, I take them to be referring to the, you know, com, you know experience of, of exactly. conversion. You weren't saved, and then you were. Somehow you received the gospel. But then he says you're standing in it, in yes. which you stand, and and you are being saved by it. So it's it's referring to present tense and present future tense as well. So the gospel is for the Christian uh, as much as it is for the lost person. Not in the same way, but as much. Um, you, know, you know, Christians cannot grow without the gospel. And I think key to this also is just under, is, is having a good distinction between gospel and law, but understanding also the connection of them. Um, because it's not about that the Bible doesn't you know, tell us anything to do or that we're not to obey or anything like that. But it's having the order correct, right, yes. that, that we obey as a response, as gratitude, as act of worship, not as, an, as a you know, meritorious act or not as an act of leverage or trying to earn anything like that. And so we just have to be you know, really clear on um, not just the distinction between gospel and law, but w- which one actually empowers people and which one actually transforms people. And it's the gospel is the power to transform uh, the gospel is the power to change people, not the law. And I think if we could get that through theologically, um, that would you know, obviously impact how we minister uh, in our churches. Uh, okay, so my third kind of major implication, Jared, what does it mean to be gospel-centered? <laughs> well, how you understand the Bible and preach and teach the Bible. How you answer the question, how people change. And then thirdly, where you go for your validation. Hmm. Where you go, if we use the word justification— I like to say validation because justification has obvious theological connotations, but I think beyond that, I received the gospel, right? And you know that you received. Um, there's a sense of what's justifying me today. Yes. Yes. He. 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 You know, my sins are forgiven, but now I'm in performance mode, and I think that's that. You know, um, important phrase in which you stand. Yes. yes. From First Corinthians 15. <laughs> Uh, when you get, you know, the idea, like when you get up in the morning and you're having, you know, you're doing business with the Lord, you're reading your Bible and you're having your, you know, your prayer time. Do you have a sense from God as if he's asking you to impress him that day? Let's see what you got. I'll withhold judgment until we see what you've got. And then at the end of the day, he's rendering, he's giving you a grade based on what you did or didn't do, all those sorts of things. Well, that kind of makes sense to us. Uh, that is intuitive in some ways, but the fact that the gospel is for the Christian and that you are presently standing in it means when you wake up in the morning, you wake up into the favor of God because of what Christ has done, yeah. not because of your performance, but because of Christ's performance. And when you go to bed at night, regardless of how the day went, and it could have been an awful day or it could have been a really great day, the Lord is not saying, uh, um, you know, he's not giving you an approval rating based on your performance. He's giving you an approval rating based on Christ's performance. Yeah. Uh, you, you you lay your head down at night into the favor yeah. of God. That that in itself is so transformative. Oh man, for the Christian, yep. for someone who doesn't have a regenerate heart, they might would you know cheapen it and take it you know for granted and 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 turn it into license and whatever. But for someone whose heart has tr- you know truly been changed, it's it's so liberating mm-hmm. and so empowering to know that the Lord's smile is over me at all times because of Jesus. Where else could you go 
in the midst of your misery and your conviction over your sin, uh, you know, feelings of condemnation or accusation, where else could you go than to the God of the universe who loves you and who holds you and will never leave you or forsake mm. you? That has to be the, the, the calibrating, steadying, joy-giving uh, reality of every day. Yeah, so where you go for your value, especially in ministry, when, and, and you know, we've talked about this a lot on the podcast before, but how things are going. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> are things going poorly? Are things going well, et cetera, et cetera? It's just this kind of the treadmill, the roller coaster of ministry yeah. life and seasons. But one thing that never changes for the believer is that God's love is there. You cannot be separated from it. Christ's work always covers you with, with divine approval. Uh, that's that never abates. Uh, I think you know Spurgeon again. He says, after ten thousand sins, he loves you as infinitely as ever. I'm like, oh man, I, <laughs> my heart just like skips a beat. It's amazing. Something I like rem- that. I remember reading, uh, and any of the regular listeners will know that uh, my favorite work of yours, Jared, is pastor certification. I remember in that book, on the the chapter on the pastor being free, you ended that chapter with my favorite paragraph in the whole book, and it's. This is why I wish there could be a second version of the book that was just uh, not just aimed at pastors, but just everybody, you know, like the, the construction workers justification and the plumbers <laughs> justification. Um, but you talk about that validation in Christ and you, you say something like, you know, where are you going to look for your validation? Are you going to look inward into your fickle feelings and these kinds of things? Are you going to look to external circumstances? Are you going to look up and to, mm. to the right hand of the father where Christ sits as your meritorious high priest? And I remember thinking that's just, may it be like, through the ups and downs of my ministry, may my eyes ever be upward towards my meritorious high priest who is even right now interceding on my behalf. And when the father looks at me, may he see his son by virtue of my union with his son. And it's only in that, that union that I can cry, Abba, Father. The, the fact that in the Christian life, Jesus' script, Abba, Father, can become my script by virtue of being united to him. And when the father sees me, he sees his son. Uh, that is ever validating, yeah. and it's immutably validating. To give uh, a little bit of my dissertation in there, um, <laughs> yeah, it's it, it's good news that this is that yes. the robe of Christ is ever new, as the hymn goes. And um, yeah, man, what a, what a good word. Yeah. So those are the my three major implications: how you understand, preach, teach the Bible is with Christ as the as the point, as the center. Um, how you answer the question, how do people change? Your understanding of transformation, your understanding of sanctification, of course. And then thirdly, where you go for your validation, for your satisfaction and, uh, in, in ministry, in your own life, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and, and all of this is just a means of trying to help people not just talk gospel-centered, but actually be, <laughs> be gospel-centered, um, which uh, sometimes can be a very significant Different. So keep talking the jargon. Um, I think that's cool. Yeah. Uh, but just make sure that you um, have some substance and some meat uh, <laughs> behind the behind the glaze there. Uh, hey, it's been great talking with you, brother. Yeah, you too, man. I, I, I enjoyed you know this subject, of course. And listener, if you enjoy the podcast, please give us a good review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. And until next time, may Jesus be big in your church. You've been listening to the For the Church podcast. Hosted by Jared Wilson, found online at ftc.co. 
This resource is brought to you by Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary in Kansas City, Missouri, where we train leaders for the church.